Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this very, very special episode of the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu, and I'm joined by my longtime colleague, friend, thought partner, our VP of Product and Operations, Chris Yensley. Hello. Great to have you in the program. I know that we've talked about having you talk about product, food, cooking, all things HVMN as well as food and fasting, metabolic health culture outside of food. But I don't, I can't think of a better opportunity to really introduce you to our community than the launch of our keto food bar. That's very, very exciting. Definitely a, a good day for for all of us, and we're excited to bring the bar. Yeah. So, like, we all have our keto food bars on hand. We're going to spend this episode nerding out on not just the narrative and the story of why this came to be, but really the science in terms of the metabolism as well as the product development. I think one thing that we really pride ourselves in at HVMN is being very thoughtful and nuanced on every single decision we make from the product selection to the concept to the design, I, I think. And I hope that all these details carry through and really the woman behind the scenes that's making you know 99% of these decisions is Chrissy. So. If you have things to compliment us on us for or blame us, talk to Christy. <laughs> yeah, blame me. <laughs> Hopefully more compliments than blame. But I, I say that completely tongue-in-cheek. So before talking about the product and the concept, I want to talk about your background. I, I think we always like going back to the start. And I think one of the rare things that I've found about your career and your framework in terms of looking at problems, especially in food, is you're very broad and because I'm going to broad and deep experience set. And what, and what I mean by that is when I talk to a lot of people in this industry, in food, in nutrition, in metabolism, they're very siloed. So you have people that are very, very focused in the lab, measuring blood glucose or different metabolic markers for metabolism, but they're very academic. Or you have very fuzzy, chef-like, cooking, taste, soft, emotional, intuitive discussion around food. But sometimes, you know, if you're on the more serious side, you're like, okay, this person seems quite floofy. And then those are two buckets. And I think the third bucket that you typically see in the food industry are people that have just pumped out tons, literally metric tons of product and are just super experienced chemical process engineers. And I think you're like one of the rare unicorns of unicorns where you really can tie all three of those disciplines into one phenomenal operator, thinker, uh, business person, product developer. So not to overly brag about yourself, but yeah, let's talk about some of your professional experience. But before that, talk about like where this all came together. Why was chemistry interesting to you? Why was food interesting to you? You have early experiences that got you down this path in terms of your schooling, your academics, and your, and your eventual career path. Yeah, absolutely. My so my upbringing, my mother was a really great baker. I think that probably started my interest in chemistry from a really, really young age, just being with her in the kitchen, mixing up baked goods for the whole family. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely experience to be able to cook for the people you love. And I think that is really the foundation of why I love chemistry. And during high school, I was the, I was the nerd that would go to summer school during the summer to take the standard classes that people are required to take during their high school years so that during the year I could take 
further electives in in chemistry. So I was I was that chemistry nerd. And when I got to university, I found out that there was this amazing major called chemical engineering, where you got to take your chemistry knowledge and apply it to real world situations, which kind of goes back to back to the kitchen, back to baking with my mom and really taking that knowledge of what is happening in this chemical environment, what's changing, what's morphing, what is it creating, and really applying that to real world problems. And I I loved that palpability and I still love that palpability. Yeah. And I think that in terms of, you know, I, you know, you were humble not to mention that that university is one of the top universities in the world, Stanford. And, and, you know, I'm also a Stanford alum as well. And I remember a lot of the chemical engineers were super hardcore. Right? Like <laughs> I, I was a computer scientist and the chemical engineering students were always like very tight knit because a very small major, not a lot of people were chemical engineers and the requirements are a lot. Like you need to take a lot of units to get that degree. Yes. I wanted to go abroad as well during my years at Stanford, but the chemical engineering major is so rigorous that you don't have any room in your schedule. You wouldn't make the, the units required to graduate uh, with a chemical engineering degree if you took a semester off. So I actually went abroad during one of my summers. I mean, there's a total side, but that's something that for the, the youngins in our audience, I, I wish I went abroad. Because I think maybe when you're an undergrad, you're like, go, go, go. Let's like get the degree. Let me try to get a master's in four years. That, that was definitely kind of my, my thought process there. But then you realize our, our careers are long. Our academic potential is, is very broad. And having a chance to, I don't know, go to Spain or, or wherever for a few months with your friends in college, not, not a... It probably is a much more of an additive experience than like an extra quarter that you save. Yeah. But hey, I mean, you live and learn. So even when you were going to chemical engineering, did you have an idea of what you would apply that skill set and training towards? Did you have this notion of being an academic, you know, pursuing further advanced degrees when you're an undergraduate? Did you always want to go into industry? What was your game plan if you had one i mean this is asking potentially like an 18 year old hey what is your life journey but i'm curious were you that kind of like 18 year old kid with like the whole life plan laid out or was just you were taking it step by step oh i had no life plan absolutely no life plan i went to so right before college i i kind of had two paths that i was going to go down it was either going to be a little bit more of an academic kind of path or it was going to be totally on the other end of the spectrum. It was a classical music path. I actually went through the gamut of classical music operatic auditions during my senior year of high school and working out the conservatory landscape of the, the United States. And that really came down to that choice of what do I want to do with my life? What do I want the optionality to do? And, and for me, choosing Stanford was kind of that, leaving that gate open because I could pursue music at Stanford. I could be in a choir. I could take vocal performance studies and I could take music theory at a very academic level, but I wasn't siloed into that from the get-go. And Stanford is notorious for I don't even think they allow you to choose a major your your freshman year. They they make you have that breadth before you sign yourself up for for the long haul. Um, so I really love 
And yeah, you have to declare. I remember that. Although, like, I think most people kind of like a lot of the, at least the CS kids at the time, they kind of knew. They knew, right? It's just like you kind of <laughs> knew. You're, you're you, you kind of knew. Maybe now, where like computer science is like the most popular major, everyone. It's, I think it used to be like human biology for pre meds or like economy for people that want to go on Wall Street. But I think today, it was everyone wanted to be like a startup Silicon Valley, Mark Zuckerberg. At least like kind of the years right after I think we we graduated school. So, it, I mean, it's just again, I think this. You have like this interesting combination of, of skill sets or experience sets, right? You have this like touch and sensibility of the arts with music, and we'll talk a little bit about your cooking, culinary experience, and thoughts there. But I want to also just go back to the chemical engineering side. I know you eventually decided to pursue a graduate degree at MIT, which is another one of the marquee institutions in the, in the world. Talk us through that decision. What was that experience like? Yeah, I'm just also kind of curious because I have a lot of friends that I think are, are really smart at MIT. I never, I've never been to MIT. I went to a summer camp there. But yeah, tell us about the experience at MIT. What did you get out of that chemical engineering advanced degree? Was there a different in focus and culture there from the West Coast? Definitely different in focus and in culture. I think the, the West Coast has a uh, reputation for being a little bit more laid back. We're going to do our homework, but we're going to do it on a blanket in the park. In <laughs> um, the East Coast was definitely a different mindset, but the same the same level of rigor from the core. So when I was leaving Stanford, I I knew I wanted to pursue a graduate degree because I didn't feel like I was done learning. I didn't feel like I was, I mean, quite frankly, ready to to just go into industry and make a splash. I really wanted to have a little bit more foundational academic knowledge. I like to I like to be prepared. My opera sensibility. I like to be rehearsed before I go on stage. So I really wanted to pursue a graduate degree. But like I said, part of the the allure of chemical engineering to me was the fact that it is so applied when you get into industry. Um, and it, it kind of takes you out of that academic sphere into, well, why are we learning these problems? Why are we learning these equations? Oh, it's because it acts like this in a chemical reactor. Oh, it's because it flows like this in this system. And what is so unique about MIT's chemical engineering program is that it's called chemical engineering practice program, where in lieu of doing a graduate thesis, where you're in the lab working on like chemical engineering fundamentals, you're actually put into industry internship positions. And that that fulfills your graduate requirement instead of thesis work. So for me, it was it was truly perfect. So that was, so at, at that point, you knew that at the, during your, the, the MIT graduate program, that you were going to be less, that, that, that career path potentially being, you know, a professor, like you, you knew at that point that, Hey, like I wanted to be a little bit more practical and impact day-to-day folks, as opposed to, you know, writing chemical engineering thesis or, 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 or hypothetical mechanisms there. Yeah. And during my time at Stanford as well, I took a lot of courses in art and design and product design. And I really, I, I knew I wanted to work on making things that people would use in their everyday life. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that consumer products 
the the timelines are are quite a bit more sped up versus something like an alternative energy kind of field or um, a pharmaceuticals type field, which a lot of chemical engineers go into those two buckets. But for me, consumer products was just so palpable. I can talk to my mom, my aunt, my grandpa. I can talk to anybody about what we're doing. I can show them, look at this bar we just made. You want to taste it? And I just, I love that. I love that it's part of my life personally, not only professionally. And that's really, really great. Yeah. I mean, I just, that thought process just made me think about, and I think a lot of, I'm sure our listeners also think about, you know, what is their North Star in terms of what they want to do with their career, with their lives. And I think there's always this potential conflict between what people think is prestigious and what people think is hard versus what you can do to contribute to actual people's happiness. And I think that people oftentimes overthink the prestige part where ultimately if you are benefiting a wider amount of people, that ultimately is prestigious because everything ends up boiling down to are you doing something of service of value to other people in our community? So I think that's like a very like almost overly simplified, but I think it's also the ground truth. Like end of the day, the most interesting, important people in that we respect in our society are doing stuff that all, all the other community members can actually recognize and say, Hey, this electric car or this laptop or this, you know, this, this podcast service is, is really adding some value and some delight to my 24 hours in a day. So can, can, uh, I would love to just hear some career highlights either in academia or in industry that were some highlights or some learning points that have driven you and, and built you to the product developer, the business person, the operator that you are today. Mm-hmm. Any highlights, any kind of interesting anecdotes? Yeah, so I would say my my general career path I started out more in in the fundamentals, in in the lab, in the manufacturing facility, working with the operators, working with the developers. And what I found early on is that I loved that application. I loved understanding how things happened. I loved understanding, oh, this material moves here. They accept this material. They put a tag on it. They send it to the lab. They do this. I love just understanding the process flows behind everything. And what I found during my time in my internships at MIT, my time working in a more corporate environment in product development or or what have you, that I, I found myself a little frustrated when decisions were made that didn't necessarily jive with manufacturability, with how it would actually end up on the line with the people putting it together or in people's homes with the with the end user using it. And so that design for manufacturability, design for usability is what I really wanted to understand and master from end to end before I came back into a business environment where I'm in control of those decisions and I can help push products along a life cycle upon a path towards ease of manufacturability towards ease of use by the end consumer and really think of it as that end-to-end goal. So where I started out was in product development at a green cleaning products company. 
And so I was in the lab, I was mixing things up. My first product development project was a body wash project. And I think it came in two or three flavors. And that was the first time I'd ever seen anything that I'd made translated to a shelf. And I remember going to Target and just like, buying up all of them off the shelf and giving them to my entire family as gifts. I'm like, look at this, this precious thing that I've just made. It'll help you smell good in the shower. And then I transitioned more into a manufacturing lens, but for that same company. So I had a lot of in-lab realistic experience with what is it like to to mix all these things together, what works, what doesn't work. And I translated that into more of a scale-up role. So I worked with our set of contract manufacturers. I worked with our own manufacturing facility and really translated everything from that lab type environment into that production environment. Um, and that for me was, was that step along the way of, hey, I'm in the lab. I understand what's going on at a fundamental level, but I want to understand not leaders of things. I want to understand thousands of liters of things. And then when that gets onto the line, how is that getting labeled? And how is that getting put in the box? And how is that getting trucked, trucked across the, the US and across the world? So that for me was, was the early part of my career. And then I've really worked to be well-rounded, to, to understand, okay, I've worked in a manufacturing facility, but like, what are the business, what's, what's the business behind manufacturing? How do you manage those relationships between your suppliers, your contract manufacturers, your third-party logistics companies? How does everything work together? And that takes you into kind of rounding out the circle of, hey, I understand it from the fundamental level. I understand it at the scaled-up level. I understand how the business affects those scaled-up levels. And then it, it, it feels very very well-rounded and holistic. And like, I have like a good understanding of what's going on at kind of every piece of the puzzle at every stage of the process. And I really, I, I, I like to use it in, in product development, this, this concept of empathy. I like to understand where are people when, when they want to eat this, what do they want? Uh, what drives them? What are they not getting from what's out there currently? And it's the same for me in business. I want to understand that person on the line that's putting on that label before I create a, a bottle or a package that, that needs a label. I, I want to understand what is it like to, to mix here? What's the, how does the, the tank that I'm heating this in heat? Does it heat evenly? Does it heat from the center? Does it heat from the sidewalls? Just every part of the process, having that like little bit of empathy of a real world environment just makes everything so much more well-rounded. Yeah, and I think even just that very cursory description of all the abstraction layers of what it takes to go from literally like a test lab personal kitchen to scale up to the metric ton level, I think also just elucidates, I think what is just one of the key problems in the existing highly processed food manufacturing world and environment that we live in. Right. Like, I think a lot of people in the nutrition community talk about conspiracy theories. Oh, big food or processed foods. They just want to, like, kill people on purpose. And I don't think I don't personally believe that. Right. Like, I think I've talked to folks in big soda, big food. I think they try to do the right thing. But there's so much translational engineering decisions that goes from, hey, I'm building something 
that I'm cooking for myself personally or for my family? And what is that chemical process, that, that abstraction that needs to require to be to a place where it could scale and be shelf stable and be, and be the right margin structure? Where I think when people make localized, local optimum decisions, where there's a specialized cog in the system for each layer, you might make the best local decision, but the overall system is optimized to something completely different. And I think what you're describing, which I think you're, you're, you're helping shed some insight into, is that if you look at the whole process and you're optimizing for the end user experience, which are, I think, very nice to articulating, making that global optimum decision might be very, very different along that chain of path. And your experience and insight to seeing all those layers, I think, is very, very important for, I think, how we as a company, HVMN, and how we as a community might try to solve this chronic disease, metabolic dysfunction crisis of our country. I think just in terms of just even COVID, I mean, the highest comorbidities of bad outcomes are things that relate to metabolism, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular risk, high blood pressure, low vitamin D status. And I think those are some of the broader things that we think about and talk a lot about in, in terms of the, the nutrition side of the, the, the metabolic side of what we do at HVMN. But before going down that path, and I want to hear more about your, uh, the intuition you've developed as a culinary chef, food person. I mean, I just have like funny anecdotes where you and I were some of the early alpha developer taste testers for some of the early, early flavorings for our ketone ester product. Um, and I, I always thought that you had a very precise, deliberate sense and description of different flavors where I might be a little bit more of a blunt instrument there, but like, I, I do like kind of the fancy meals. But you always had like a very acute sense of flavor, smell, and, and, and use very precise diction to, to explain these things and, and extrapolate these things. God-given talent, something you developed, you know, where did that come from? Was it something that was practiced, trained, talent? How do you, how do you describe it? I think a mix of both. Uh, probably more trained and really honed over over the years. Uh, my partner and I love to cook, love to host. We love hosting dinner parties and backyard barbecues. I mean, you've you've been to some of our our barbecues. Pre COVID times, those were really fun. <laughs> Pre COVID times, yes. Uh, but so we're we're both from Texas, and he and I love to love to cook, love to prepare meals, love to understand how people are appreciating or not appreciating what we're cooking. Um, I think something that's very odd that we do, um, and we've talked about it with our, with our family that we're, we're, we're staying with during these, these COVID times, is every meal without judgment, we ask each other, what would you change about this? And it isn't, hey, you just made this ribeye and I'm going to rail on your ribeye and I'm going to tell you it was overcooked or I'm going to tell you your crust was off or I'm going to tell you your the, the butter you used to baste it like actually got a little burned. It's not that uh, and it's not coming from any sort of negative lens. It's really wanting to understand what would we change about this? If we're going to make this next time, what what would make it better? There's a There's a cookbook and a Netflix series by an amazing culinary artist that is called Salt 
fat, acid, heat. Um, and it's kind of those, those main buckets of what is flavor? What provides flavor to a dish? And I love, I love that that doesn't include sweetness, which is very, which, which is very, I think, telling of the main components of flavor aren't necessarily sugar. And so we like to talk about it in that lens. What would you change about this? Oh, I think it actually needs a little bit more of an acidity. Hey, actually that that acid that we used, maybe we used lemon juice instead of, of vinegar. I actually think the acid we used was the wrong acid here. Um, how could we shift this to make it a little bit more mellow or a little bit more sharp? It's missing a little bit of salt. Let's make sure to keep salt on the table because everybody has different salt preferences and tolerances. Hey, this is a little bit too rich. Maybe we should back off on the butter next time. Or it's missing that richness. Like let's add in some some coconut oil. Let's not trim the fat off of this ribeye uh, next time. So it, it comes down to taking things at their fundamental level and understanding how you would how you would tweak them to really come out with something that's balanced, something that is interesting and variable with every bite, um, and not not homogeneous, um, and something that's exciting and something that takes you someplace. Uh, cooking uh, cooking is very very powerful, and I, I love that about it. And I think I, I mean just that. That, that last description, cooking is powerful, I think resonates in terms of a little bit of, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say critique, but just the discussion about what we're doing in terms of changing how we think about food, changing how we think about fasting is that I think the misconception is that, oh, because we talk about fasting or thoughtful pause in food, we like hate food. And I, I want to use this conversation as a way to say that, no, like we're pretty deep into the food nerdiness. I'm curious in terms of, do you have nuggets from your formal chemical engineering background where you're kind of dropping knowledge bombs where your your collaborators and when you're in the kitchen, you're like, oh, they're like, wow, how did you know about like, I don't know, the caramelization of this ingredient versus that or some kind of nerdy thing in, in cooking that is not obvious, but, but given your formal chemical engineering training, that was something that was kind of like a interesting application. Interesting question. I mean, I think engineering education's like we said in the beginning, they're all about application. They're all about, here's this fundamental question that we want to ask or we want answered. But here's this, here's this real life scenario where that can be applied. So we're not talking in XYZ. We're not talking in one, two, three, very abstract terms. We're talking in terms of here's this exact system with these exact parameters. How does it all change. So I think just at the fundamental level, that that understanding of how do we look at a problem? How do we define a problem? And how do we go about breaking that problem into its subcomponents and solving them individually and then in some? That's really what engineering helps you bring to the table. And that carries through in the kitchen, in development in business when you're working with manufacturers, really that ability to come at a problem and very, very quickly break it down into the subcomponents and be able to isolate the problem or isolate the solution. That's what an engineering type background helps you hone. Um, So if it's baking with my mom, it's 
hey, we're actually going to get a better crust on this pie if we use an aluminum dish because aluminum conducts heat better than a ceramic. And the ceramic might look better on the Thanksgiving table, but that cheap aluminum one from the grocery store is actually going to turn out with a better pie. So it, it it can be very simple questions, or it can go all the way up to the more complex questions that you get when you're making a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand bars at a time. All of the the problems that you you get or faced with have solutions, and they're often easy solutions when you just break them down into really what you're looking for. Yeah. And regular HVMN podcast listeners will know that I always talk about systems engineering or first principles approach. And I think it's, I think that's, again, a very powerful lens, especially when we're applying to something as maybe intuitive or not traditionally thought of as engineering, which is cooking and culinary uh, practice, which in a lot of sense is that like beautiful combination of science and art where you have to have some inspiration and intuition around what is going to be this magical combination that we haven't thought about before. But in terms of activating either the taste buds or the texture or the metabolism, that's science, right? And I think that's where, I think we're in this playground of having this broad set of metabolic challenges that our culture, our civilization is facing while also having a very attuned eye towards, hey, to even have this be a, have a shot at trying to solve some of these broader civilizational issues, it has to be delivered in a way that makes a lot of sense, like that, that is fun, that is enjoyable. So let's talk about it. I think hopefully that establishes that Chrissy is a, a gangst, is a boss, and like knows what she's talking about. So let's talk about the problem set and the, the the latest project that we're unveiling today. So Keto Food Bar, this is something that we've been working on for 12, probably 18 months, just in maybe even longer in terms of just like discussing things that we wanted to introduce into the world. And, you know, we've had like very different, like early variants of what eventually ended up being KFB. But curious to hear your origin story behind KFB. And I think that with multiple like projects like these, I'm sure my origin story is going to be a little bit different from your origin story, but I'd love to hear your origin story for the first time here. Ooh, good, good one. I think being keto in the real world, on the go, is hard, is, is really difficult. Um, and I think the, the options that are out there for people to maintain their macros, to fuel their day, to feel good, to feel like they're getting good nutrition or giving good nutrition to their family is quite hard when you're talking about packaged food. If you're if you're cooking a meal, you have all of the the palette of ingredients in front of you. You can you can easily not easily, you can reasonably reasonably <laughs> you can reasonably make keto-friendly dishes that are delicious and to your tastes, um, but it does take time and it does take accessibility to high quality ingredients. And a lot of the country is in what's called a food desert where, where packaged food really is the primary option for, for nutrition. And if you take a road trip across the country, you'll, you'll very quickly see that the majority of what is out there in packaged food is sugar or some form thereof. And it's 
it's sad. It's sad that that is the quote unquote nutrition that we are subjecting our citizens to. And I think packaged food has a lot to catch up on in terms of this realization that, hey, refined carbohydrates are not very great for you. And hidden sugars to replace fats that you've taken out of foods that are there naturally, those fats are there for a reason. And when you take them out, the food tastes quite bland. And then you have to replace it with something to make it palatable again, which they replaced with sugar. And I think over the past decade, people have been doing a lot of thinking about how do we undo a lot of the nutritional misinformation that started in the mid-century and has basically permeated our entire food supply chain. I think there are two easy on-the-go options for people who want to live a more ketogenic type lifestyle, and that's the jerky world. <laughs> jerky is is doing really great. I think in the beginning, they had a lot of hidden sugars, but there are a lot of low sugar, zero sugar options for dehydrated meat products now, which are great. Great, easy on the go, shelf stable, and has its roots in ancestral human nutrition of dehydrated meat products, which the, the keto story really has its its roots in, in that ancestral way of being. Yeah, a lot of the early explorers, early warriors, pemmican, jerky, that was what fueled our explorers and our warriors. Yeah. 100%. So people have jerky, dehydrated meat products at their disposal. And then one that's that's pretty interesting that's coming out into the world now is, is also dehydrated cheeses. Um, you'll see like puffed cheese bars or uh, cheese puffs that's literally just cheese like they haven't added any sort of starches or carbohydrates to them like like a cheeto or or what you would consider a normal like, cheese puff uh, but really just dehydrated cheese and that's kind of what's out there our assessment of the landscape of what is available to to keto people on the go in a package format was super super limited and we simply wanted to create something that people felt good about eating People felt like they could trust and, and, and something that actually is keto. Our, our tagline for this, it's real food, real keto. And that is, that is the summation of what we're trying to do and what we think we accomplished with this, with this product line is real food, real keto. And it's solving the two problems we see in this industry is there are healthy, real food, or not healthy, healthy, real food options that are basically just giant sugar and carbohydrate bombs. If you look on the back of most quote unquote healthy bars, the first or second ingredient and many ingredients thereafter is a form of sugar, brown rice syrup, honey, dates, glucose syrup, you name it. There are 50 names for sugar and you'll find one to five of them in like most bars and they feel very natural because you can pronounce all of the names in the bar and all of the ingredients but really when you when you get down to like the fundamental macronutrient level the primary macronutrient in most of those is sugar and yes, refined sugar. yeah carbohydrates so that to us didn't feel like real food. It, it, it felt 
it, it felt like this mid-century ideal of everything has to be low fat and fat is the enemy and 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 we wanted to to solve that and give people a, an option in the real food space that actually was full of of healthy fats was full of beneficial fats and moderate protein and the other side of what we're seeing out there is is a surgence in keto positioned products but we like to call most of what's out there a frankenstein product which is well yes it's it looks keto and it like it talks like a duck uh looks keto but at what cost you can't pronounce most of the names they're super highly processed and when you get down to it a lot of them are actually not as beneficial for your your insulin response as you you'd think they would be um, a lot of them have artificial sugars, artificial sweeteners, a lot of things to just really bump up the the sweetness because we think that these other companies don't really understand the keto consumer. They they think the keto consumers are just missing craving all of the sugar that they can't have anymore on a keto diet. And the what we found in our research is the majority of people love being on a keto diet. Like fat is delicious. <laughs> Moderate protein is delicious. And when you do get something that has a bit of sweetness, it it's done in a way that doesn't break you out of ketosis. It, it, it is in moderation. Um, and it's not this just shove sugar or shove artificial sweetener in your face. And really that's what we were going for with this line is this is keto but it is still real food and it is not overly sweet and it's not birthday cake flavored and you won't feel silly going out for drinks with friends and you want to grab a snack on the way and you're eating something that is very, very childish and, and so overly sweet. We really wanted to give people an option that felt like something that they could make themselves in their own kitchen if they wanted to create bars in, in their own oven. Yeah. No, I, I love that last sentence there, which is like, I think the dream product state and, and especially going back to the beginning parts of this conversation, which is that how do you scale something that you can make in your kitchen to a way that's affordable and accessible for millions of people. And that loss in translation, I think is a huge disservice to broader population health. And I think, we spent so much effort and time trying to basically not have any fidelity or let loss of information through that translation and scaling up process. And I think we've done, I think we've done that here. I mean, uh, the way I think about KFB, I, I agree with everything you've told there. I think those are some of the key things we think about a lot, but potentially a lens that I also think about is that, We've been so cutting edge, introducing completely new category, a new, I guess, category, form, like invention of a ketone ester drink that's really, really interesting, really, really novel, but super expensive. And it's designed for Navy SEALs and MMA champions. And then we've had nootropics, which are enhancing cognition, but not necessarily something that you would be very open to sharing, you know, you're, I, I'm not 
even though I'm on the more crazy and uninhibited side, I'm not necessarily going to pop out my pill of rise or my capsule of rise and be like, hey, passing these out at, at a party or something. And I think not to say that KFB is like a nerfed version and it's super shareable, but I think we've taken that engineering approach, that diligence, that focus on science that we've applied through our nootropics, through our ketone products, through every single thing that we do to service the very, very elite. We've translated that into a format that's super, super shareable. So I'm just personally excited to be able to, you know, if you find me on the street, which I, I know that it's been one of the weird side effects of having this podcast. I've literally been stopped in San Francisco. Being like, hey, do you, do, you, do you have a podcast? I'm like, uh, yes, I want... I, I'm just so excited to just like hand these out and like give them to people because yeah. we're so confident about, I think some of the exact like taste and, and flavor profiles. When I eat something like, I don't know, I'll, I'll just say it by name. Cause like we, we can, we have receipts, like something like a quest bar, which really promulgated the notion of isomalto oligosaccharides as a fiber, but it actually has been shown to spike insulin well, it looks like it's keto, as you're saying, is actually not what you want in terms of the glycemic response if you actually look at your biometrics. And, it, and so like people are getting, are trying to do the right thing, but what's out there is not actually of service to that goal. And then two, I think people have it completely wrong, exactly to your point, which is that I, I think people make something like a candy bar. And I don't know if we're just rare unicorns here, but I don't need something that like mimics a Snickers bar mm -mm. or a, a Skittles. I just want something that actually tastes real. Give me that little bit of slight like like sweetness, but have that from cacao. Have that from an actual kind of rich, deep, real sugar source from a natural source. And I think the beauty of what we've created here is that we've ended up in a perfect macro blend. So it's what 75% fat calories from fat, 20% from protein, 5% from carbohydrate. And it's literally like, if you look at gold standard keto macros, we've hit that on the dot, which I think is just a testament to the engineering process of dialing in each of the variables. I almost want to just like go down the ingredient list and nerd out a little bit about them. I know that. Uh, which one are we looking at? Which one do you want to talk about? I mean, I think we can, we can choose any to start. Maybe Mexican hot chocolates. I feel like it's, this one is just like something so cool where cayenne pepper, like real cayenne pepper in a bar, like who does that? Like, I guess, you know, it's like, like we do that. And I think it is interesting, just that one of your points I thought was valuable to share is that if you look at a lot of these bar, bars out there, if it's dates or brown sugar syrup or glucose syrup, syrup or tapioca syrup or all these like or, like organic rice syrup, these are all fancy marketing names for glucose, right? And it's just like people should understand that if you have organic sugar, it looks chemically the same as synthetic sugar. Like it might be different from a pesticides growing process. Great. Like we'll take all of that good stuff for the environment, but metabolically, physiologically, sugar is sugar is sugar. It doesn't matter if it's pooped out from a cow or pooped out from God or pooped out from like a tree, it's it's going to affect your blood glycemic response the same. Yeah, your body doesn't see the source of things. Yeah, so 
let's let's talk about like okay we 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 hyped up these kfbs so what's in here what's the first ingredient the first ingredient is organic almond butter i love almonds so i think the natural question for our uh food nerds out there there's a number of potential nuts to consider here mm-hmm. why did we land on almond are there either fatty acid ratios or monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, saturated fat considerations that made us choose to go with the almond route. Yeah. So the the three main nut butters that are are used in in bars like this or throughout the the food industry, peanut butter, almond butter, and cashew butter. Those are the, the most prevalent out there. And simply from a a wanting it to be the base of the formula, really something that holds the formula together and is the most widely applicable for the most amount of people. For us, peanut really didn't follow that that lens. It's a pretty rampant allergen. Um, so if we use it in a product, we would want to use it very intentionally for the purpose of this is peanut flavored. It is peanut butter cup. It is peanut with a Thai kind of twist or whatever it may be, the peanut will be there for a reason. And cashew butter, on the other hand, is extremely high in carbohydrate um, compared to some of its sister nuts. And almond butter, pretty low in saturated fat, um, pretty high in uh, mono and polyunsaturated fats, um, which make it a really great pairing for the other nutritional fats in the formula, which are cacao butter and coconut oil, which are relatively more high in their content of saturated fats. So as with as with everything, as with taste, as with anything you do in the kitchen, everything is about a balance on the macro level and on the micro level. So on the micro level of the breakdown of fats, you, you want to be varied, you want to be nutritionally varied. And almond butter is just a really great basis for the bar where it is it's pretty taste neutral you can you can kind of paint over it with lots of different flavors and come out with like a really exciting variance um, in tastes and it it, it it provides a really good basis to have some some higher punches of saturated fat from the coconut oil and the cacao butter but also give you that that background of polyunsaturated and, and monounsaturated fats that aren't necessarily in those more common oil sources like coconut oil, MCT oil, that kind of world. Yeah. And then one thing, and hopefully you can educate me on this, is that one thing that I think is so special about this bar is that the texture is amazing. Mm -hmm. Again, if I eat something like more on the quest side of house, it's almost tacky. It's like sticky-ish. It's like, it's like a block. And then you have things that are kind of oily, just like it's like there's so much fat content in there. It's like feels like it's like drippy with oil. Was the almond butter here one of the key things or what was the magic combination here where we got the texture that that just feels like something that's. I don't know, perfect. I I don't know what I will say, but just like it just it's it's. It crumbles nicely. It's not, but it's not dry and it's like not sticky. Yeah, that was one of the most important aspects of a bar when we did our initial consumer surveys, community surveys, talking to people 
FaceTiming with people, watching people eat bars before COVID was texture really, really matters to people. And they don't want things to get stuck in their teeth. And for the keto consumer, seeing something like nuts held together by some sort of syrupy substance. What is that syrupy substance? Like, how is that actually keto? It looks like sugar syrup. So having things make sense really was important to us. And and everybody's familiar with coconut oil and cacao butter, and most people call it cocoa butter, which is they're, they're solid at room temperature. They're, they have a, like a lovely kind of silky texture. Uh, they melt in your mouth. And that really for us is that finding that balance of fats in the bar really creates this perfect truffle-like texture and it doesn't melt um, unless it's in your hot car. So don't keep them in your hot car because uh, it is high in fat. <laughs> but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't crumble and it doesn't get stuck in your teeth. Uh, but when you put it in your mouth and you just like let it sit on your tongue between your upper palate and your tongue, it, it, it does melt. If you let it sit there, it just, it, it just melts away. And yeah, the best, the best adjective for it is, is kind of a truffle type texture. Yeah. I think that's, that's like perfect word for it. I mean, it, so it, it's almost like a dessert, but not like in a blow up your glycemic response, which I think is like a, such a cool combination there. Mm-hmm. In green number two, I see here's grass fed collagen peptides. Yep. We're, we're huge fans of collagen. I think one of the things that is missing in a lot of the modern nutritional diet is a lack of connective tissue, awful, awful OFFAL organ meats that have high collagen content, and especially glycine, which is an amino, a dominant amino acid component of, of, uh, of collagen. Talk us through considerations there. I'm super happy we went with the grass-fed route. Can you talk us through why is collagen like literally the number two ingredient in this product? Yeah. So you want a protein source that you feel is a good complement to the nut butter. And the amino acid breakdown of the proteins that are in nuts and seeds um, is very different than the amino acid breakdown that you would see in an animal-based source. And this is not to say that a lot of really interesting development is not happening in the plant-based protein category. I think that is a really, really exciting category, but I don't think it's necessarily there yet. Um, There are a lot of issues with texture, with bitterness that come from plant protein extracts. Whereas collagen protein is just a really lovely complement to the almond butter base. Um, and it really gives you that varied amino acid profile. Collagen has a very great taste profile as well. And so for us, it was it was a, a an easy decision to go with the collagen protein as, as uh, the added protein source in, in the bar. And we're excited for for the future when when plant-based proteins are a little bit more mature. Some of these food science, food technology type problems of overprocessing of taste texture, all of those things have been a little bit more solved. We're super excited from a product development standpoint to to look into those more. But yeah, for us the the collagen was really the right call. Yeah, 100%. I think for I mean, I think, again, when we go back to like maximizing Mac be- benefit across not just humans, but also our planet, our 
other animal species, our environment. I think that's something that we, we think a lot about. I think I'm with you on in terms of the assessment of plant protein availability technology. I think the data in terms of the physiology metabolism is just not there yet in terms of delivering the right amino acid blend. Also, just in terms of, I think, the processing part, right? Like yeah, rice protein, pea protein is just not as dense in, the ter- in terms of amino acid as animal products. It's just a fact. So are you trading off? jamming in super highly processed plant protein, is that really truly better from the environment if you're sourcing something that's grass-fed cows? I think that's like a, another way to think about it if folks are super tuned to the green side of the story, thinking just a little bit step back in terms of not just the primal thing you're thinking about, but the proximal factors of how it takes in terms of supply chain and the support environment to even make that thing possible. I see, uh, we talked a little bit about cacao butter, but I think one of the interesting things is soluble tapioca fiber. Like there's definitely, I think one of the critiques with keto products or low carb products is that, okay, you get a bunch of sugar alcohols or fibers in there and you blow your guts out, AKA you get some diarrhea, you you have a lot of gas. How do we solve that problem here? Mm, Yeah. There are two different categories of fibers. One is insoluble fiber and one is soluble fiber. So insoluble fibers are the ones that act like a broom through your colon, um, really cleaning out type processes. So they they have the the bulking effect. Soluble fibers, on the other hand, are often prebiotic, which means that they pass through your digestive system unharmed, but the microbes in your gut actually feed on them. And making sure that you're feeding your microbiome a proper balance of prebiotics and ones that have the intended effect on those microbes as well as your macro system is really important. And so when choosing a fiber for our bar line, one of the most important things in terms of a food technology standpoint is that the fiber gel is one of the binding agents in a bar. So similar to how a cliff bar, a Kind bar, they're held together with glucose syrup or brown rice syrup or honey or dates or whatever the sugar source might be. Sugar really acts as a glue. And in the keto world, fibers act as a glue. You think about fibers as long starches, they really bind things together and keep everything held together. And when we were looking at the different fiber glues that are available and that people are using as in their in their palate, it's Definitely a varietous space, but the two most prevalent that you will see out there are soluble tapioca fiber, which is a resistant dextrin form of fiber, and then chicory root fiber, which is an inulin form of soluble fiber. One of the problems with inulin, though, so the chicory root type of world, chicory root sounds lovely, sounds very natural, looks great on a label, but inulin is a It's a a shorter molecule, which means that when it passes through your system and hits your gut, those microbes are able to digest that extremely quickly. And you get what is termed as a explosive fermentation digestion reaction. And everybody knows what a explosive reaction in your gut uh, turns into. So for us and through a lot of first party testing, we were not really comfortable 
with the chicory root route simply because of those side effects that you get. And I would I would posit that a lot of people that have had ill responses with keto type products, a lot of it is due to due to the chicory root and and due to the the choice of the fiber that people are using in their product. But soluble tapioca fiber, on the other hand, has an interesting history. So I don't know, you you, you mentioned isomaltooligosaccharide earlier and these are these these fibers are in an interesting space of of regulation and of labeling and of the FDA where isomaltooligosaccharide used to be able to be labeled as soluble tapioca fiber. So when you research soluble tapioca fiber, a lot of resources that that consumers will find online say IMOs, IMOs, they're bad, they're bad, stay away. But that's really because it was an IMO. It wasn't this actual resistant dextrin soluble tapioca fiber, which is what we use in in keto food bars. Yeah. I mean, just I think the level of detail they're able to go into each specific ingredient here, it makes me just think that everyone else that's been out there just like didn't even care about like actually eating, thinking, and just doing proper R&D to access the quality, right? It's just like, it's pretty obvious if you have something that's high inulin and you eat it a couple of times or eat two bars or, and you get gas and it's just like, why did these people put this out on the market? And then I think one of the things that I'm really glad that we were able to really implement is actually have and implement continuous glucose monitoring data to actually confirm the glycemic response, right? And I think just seeing those curves where you see something like a cliff bar, literally upwards of 30 times a higher glucose peak response, even RX bar, one of the, you know, what used to be one of my favorite bars, because, you know, it's all ingredients that I knew, it's like 15, 16 times the peak glucose response of KFB. And again, I think maybe it just people were not aware, didn't have the wherewithal to actually test, not just subjective feel from the, you know, digestive experience or even just having glucose modern technology. But I think all these things add up where I just, I, I, I don't know where to nitpick here. The only thing I would nitpick is I want more flavors. Um, <laughs> and I think let's, 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 let's shift to, to, to the flavors. I mean, we have, we have chocolate chunk, the red one, we have vanilla shortbread, the white one, tan one, we got Mexican hot chocolate, the brown one. And we got everything bagel, the blue one. Can you share a little about your insight into flavor selection? And then obviously I think as you know, folks can relatively intuit chocolate chunk, vanilla shortbread a little bit more within the wheelhouse of what you expect in terms of a kind of a delicious, sweet forward bar, but Mexican hot chocolate, everything bagel. A little bit outside the box here. What was your thought process, creativity there? So chocolate is a classic. When we were talking to people, chocolate is definitely the number one thing that people are looking for. And I think it's interesting because it toes that line between bitter and sweet really well. So it it can be a, a savory flavor when people want something a little bit more savory, or it can tend towards the more milk chocolate when someone wants something a little bit sweeter. So um, we knew we wanted to put chocolate in the line. But yeah, our our basic flavor philosophy was that we want to create adult representations of of flavors. Um, we don't want something that is just like 
hitting your palate with sweetness all day long. And we don't want something that feels childish. Like I said, the, the birthday cakes of the world. We want something that feels like something you would make in your kitchen, something you would bake in your oven. If you're making a really awesome chocolate chip cookie, it's going to have nuts. It's going to have sea salt sprinkled on top. It's it's going to have those um, varietous flavors that keep you coming back for, for more and picking up cookie after cookie. That understanding of people's palates and what they're what they're craving and what they're they're looking for is really what drove us in in every individual flavor. The choices of chocolate chunk and vanilla shortbread, like you said, they do feel a little bit more mainstream, a little bit less of a activation energy to to trying them because they are a little bit familiar. The the chocolate chunk, like I said, is really that that incredible artisanal chocolate chip cookie type of vibe that we are going for. It's got some walnuts, it's got some pecans, it's got some cashews. It has uh, all of the all of the bars I wanted we wanted to have seeds in them as well. So we wanted a blend of nuts and seeds because like we talk about the 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 macro profile of things, the micro profile of things, having that varietous source of fats and micronutrients and minerals, um, having a blend of nuts and seeds in every bar was was really important to us. And this is just that artisanal chocolate chip cookie that you like look in the window of the bakery and it's got the flaky sea salt on top and you're like, oh, that's just like, it looks so good. And this one is good room temperature. It's good if you put it in the freezer and then you crumble it, it can be a topping for things. Uh, it's pretty good if you put it in the microwave just for a little bit and it's kind of gooey and melty and it tastes like a chocolate chip cookie right of right out of the oven. So that is the chocolate chunk. The vanilla shortbread is kind of a classic shortbread, shortbread batter type feel. Um, so it's really heavy on the pecan and the walnut and the vanilla. And it reminds me of, I said my mom was a, was a big baker. At every holiday season, she would make what we called sand tarts. I think they're also called like me Mexican wedding cookies. It's, it's basically like a nutty shortbread that you roll into a ball. And this reminds me of sand tart dough. It is nutty. It's creamy. The seeds in here are hemp seeds and chia seeds. And it's just a lovely everyday classic, a little bit salty, a little bit sweet. It's really, really good. So those are the two classics of the line. But there, there's a saying in, in consumer products that if you want to introduce something new into the world, you have to do it alongside something that's known. So for us, it was, let's do half and half. Two products that people would really understand, that people would get, that people would be familiar with, that people would be a little bit more likely to to pick up if they've never heard of a, of a brand before. And then two wild cards, one in the, the savory category and one in the spicy sweet kind of category. And Mexican hot chocolate is, is a, it's a chocolate bar. Um, so there's, there's cacao in the base of the bar as well. Um, and then you have amazing melty 100% cacao chocolate chips in there as well that just like melt in your mouth and it's incredible but if you've ever had a mexican hot chocolate it is it is not 
too deep, so it's not too savory of a chocolate, but it's it's this incredible milky chocolate and it's so comforting and it's really infused with cinnamon. And then as you drink it, you get that kick of the cayenne pepper and it just like keeps you coming back for sip after sip after sip. And this one is really exciting. I personally, Mexican hot chocolate is my favorite. I am a bit of a chocoholic. And the seed in here are actually pepitas, pumpkin seeds. Yeah, I think if I had to choose a favorite kid, it would, I, I, I'm actually, I, I, I underline, I, I, I second you. Ooh. I think Mexican hot chocolate is my favorite as well. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last one of the line, everything bagel. So I, as a, as a product developer and as a consumer of products, I think that something that's missing in the world is that like in, in the keto packaged goods world is a true representation of salty. I think a lot of the products that are out there, the, the, the bars, the nut blends, if you see like trail mix blends, a lot of them are like sweet and salty and they're, they're trying to like toe the line into saltiness, but they're actually quite sweet. Um, so you'll see like honey barbecue, but everything bagel is truly a, a salty bar. Um, so everyone be aware this one has no sweetness. <laughs> it truly does taste like an everything bagel or I, my personal favorite is uh, Trader Joe's has everything bagel crackers and they are just divine. They are so good. They're not keto friendly. Uh, but this is the keto friendly version of that. Um, so they are, it's heavy on salt. It is heavy on sesame and poppy seeds and garlic and onion. And this one is, I mean, it's, it's a lovely savory aspect, uh, which is just so, so unique and so exciting. And I think cult classic, this is a lot of everybody's favorite, but it actually is salty and garlicky and oniony. So be prepared. Yeah, you will get garlic breath after this. I mean, it's <laughs> proper. Yeah, again, like b- given that everything is certified organic, there's real garlic, real onion, real sesame, real poppy seeds. Yeah, no, I, 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 I like, I like everything, but I think just the mix in the hot chocolate. I think when I eat, when I think bar, I think I guess I'm still a little bit traditionalist. I want something a little bit sweet, but I think that kick of the cayenne, pepitas, pumpkin seed, nice touch. It's, it's a good, it's a yummy, it's a yummy bar. But yeah, I, I, I think it's been funny to me when people ask me about, oh, I want to start keto. What's your recommendation? I want to buy something from HVMN. What, what do you recommend? And obviously, I think keto collagen or MCT with coffee is an awesome way to kick off the day. And I'm just super excited now to say, hey, if you want a, like a little bit of a savory breakfast, you know, you don't need to go for like the everything bagel. You can have like a literally 100% keto compliant everything bagel, savory, onion, garlic, deep, rich, umami flavor blast in the morning. You're not eating like, you know, a chocolate bar or whatever, or like a sweet cereal thing. You're eating like a proper everything bagel, but in full keto macro compliant macros. I think that's super exciting for us to be able to offer that to the world. Yeah. We wanted to be able to give people something for every part of their day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, whatever you're your feeding protocol is whatever whenever you eat uh, we wanted to be able to give you something that would that would work for that that time and work for for your palate i personally think that 
having two is like a really good sized meal. It's around 400, 500 calories. It's like a really good meal. So I will mix and match. So I'll often do like a savory everything bagel and then a vanilla shortbread for for dessert. So it's a it's a fun mix and match and create your your own adventure for your own palate. Yeah, I think for me it's been super clutch to have this on like longer bike rides or just oh, after yeah. workout, right? I just I, sometimes I just like don't want to just shake up a shake, right? It's mm-hmm. just like all right, I have something that's just ready in my pocket, you know, in my gym bag ready to go. Yeah, and that's what we were saying earlier. The only option out there in that on the go is jerky right now if you're staying within a high fat keto lens and and in that aspect jerky is is too high in protein to to really be used widely in in a keto dieter's nutritional arsenal so something that is actually truly high in fat that can complement whatever what, what what's out there already just didn't exist in our opinion yeah and i'm and i'm a big fan of jerky i got like a whole pound like i got like 20 bags just or sorry, 20 pounds, probably just like stocking for, for COVID food reserves. And it, it's great. But I think it's like, hey, I don't want to eat just dry, leathery meat slices all day long, right? Like there's something delicious about things a little bit more, I don't want to say like wetness, but a little bit more moisture, like texture, fun, like just a better texture, right? Like I don't want to just be gnawing down and like being thirsty all day long, just eating jerky. So I, I want to like almost just pause it here because i feel like there's so there's gonna be so many follow-up questions whether it's on the flavors i know that people have already suggested new flavors new ideas what's the best way to reach out to you i think like just your trajectory your story just i i feel like it is just inspiring and interesting i know you're somewhat active on social but i'm like where do people follow along your personal journey and then how do people solicit feedback uh, in terms of the product. I know that we always have podcasts at hvmn.com open there. So if people write into that channel or to our social channels, we'll definitely forward it to Christy and the product team. But where do people follow along uh, on your personal journey? So yeah, in terms of my personal journey, I'm on Instagram. I'm on social media. You can see my backyard barbecues. Uh, You can see all the crazy things that I and my partner my dog do what's the handle chrissy ensley you will find me there all right at chrissy ensley at chrissy ensley and in terms of getting in touch with me on a more hvmn specific channel so my team is the product and operations team that means we handle everything in the entire product life cycle all the way from ideation into manufacturing and then on into customer service so reaching me at care c-a-r-e at hvmn.com my team will forward any specific feedback straight to me awesome yeah that's that's perfect so i want so let's let's wrap up here any last thoughts there's one thing that we want to do special for podcast listeners and if you've tuned in all the way to here you deserve this we're doing a special limited offer for just podcast folks. So if you do Jeff, G-E-O-F-F-10 on the discount code uh, on, on the checkout, you're going to get 10% off extra off of KFB. So that's going to be super awesome. Podcast fam, you guys are you guys are awesome. You guys deserve this. And as I think one of the other things that is just generally available is that we're offering these four-pack sample kits, which include one of each flavor. Especially for free. So just pay for shipping and which is $4.95 and you'll get this in the mail. And I think that's just like 
uh, investment that we're so confident that you'll like the product that we don't even make money off of the, you know, we will like literally get it to you at a loss to have you try it. Cause I think we're just so confident in terms of the product and the quality and that you'll be coming back for more. So, I mean, this is a fun conversation. I, I think it's, we always talk shop, you know, through the normal business day. So it's fun to like actually hear a little bit about your origin story and your, your career and, and your perspective. I think you're, you're super smart and well-read across the industry and, and the trends. And hopefully, you know, I expect that if we have audience questions, we'd love to hear more of your insights uh, moving forward in, in future podcasts. Absolutely. So Chrissy, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. My first, my first podcast experience. All right. We'll see you guys next time.